Thank you, Rick, and thank you, friends at First Free. Good morning. I'm here to tell you this morning that everyone loves a good story. Do they not? Everyone loves a good story, and a powerful story has the ability to affect you in so many ways. It can make you cry. It can make you angry. It can make you commit to never eat meat again. You know what I'm saying? A good story can move masses of people because everyone loves a good story. When I was in college, I dreamed of being a songwriter. I wanted to write music. And so I wrote a few songs, and I didn't like any of them. I felt like they sounded whiny or something. They were missing something. So I started listening to all of my favorite musicians to see what it is that they have that I don't have. And I quickly learned that a good song is essentially a story packed into four verses in a chorus. So a good songwriter is a storyteller. For instance, maybe you've heard of a singer-songwriter by the name of Johnny Cash. Anyone hear of Johnny Cash? He's a masterful storyteller in all of his songs. Maybe you heard this song. Well, I hear the train a-coming, it's coming round the bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when, because I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, right? That's, yeah, well, time breaks on. He's a storyteller, and you want to hear the rest of that story. Everyone loves a good story. We use story time at home to get our kids to bed, because even kids love a good story. Now, I've been saying that everyone loves a good story, so I guess it goes without saying that no one likes a bad story. Am I right? And so in order for us to know what a good story is, we need to know that there are certain ingredients, there are certain elements in every story that makes it a good story. And these ingredients are critical, and they go way back, before Christ even. For instance, the Hebrew people were amazing storytellers, and the book that you have in your hand, if you have a Bible in your hand, is a story of full of stories that the Hebrew people have passed down from generation to generation. Now, what we know about the elements of a story has come mostly to us from an ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Aristotle. Anyone have, raise your hand if you've heard of Aristotle. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal. Um, in his book, The Poetics, he tells us that the first principle, the most critical part of every story, is the plot. And this may be review for you, but I didn't do so good in school, and so I needed this review. The plot is the structure of the story. It's important for us to know this morning that the plot is not the story. The story is the story, and the plot is the structure within the story. The way I like to remember it is the plot are the, are the plots on the map that tell you where you're going. It's not the map. The map is the map, and the plots tell you where you're going. So the story is the story, and the plot holds the story together. Now, Aristotle said that every plot must have a beginning and a middle and an end. Can you see why he was such a big deal? Wow. <laughs> and the beginning's important, and the end is important. And the middle is extremely important, and within the middle you have conflict and resolution and climax and irony and all kinds of cool stuff. You know, some scholars will actually argue that there's only one plot line at all, and that same plot line is woven into every story you've ever read or heard. I don't know if that's true, but I know it to be true for chick flicks. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean, uh, movies that girls like. And I'm married, so I watch a lot of these, um, you know, like Princess Diaries and Princess Bride and Princess Goes Shopping. I don't know. There's lots of them. 
And they all have the same plot line. I'll tell you the plot line. Here it is. Um, in the beginning, a guy meets a girl and they hate each other. They're never going to get together. And then, wait for it, I'm building tension. <laughs> they fall in love. And they always do. And then they go shopping together and they go on long walks and he tells her his soul. And then, here comes the climax, he messes it up. He always messes it up. And then he spirals down into a cave of despair where he loses his job, grows his beard out, and hangs out in a dirty apartment full of pizza boxes. And then one day he remembers, there once was a time in which she loved me. If she loved me once, she can love me again. And so he shaves his beard, cleans his apartment, gets a job, goes to Walmart, buys a boombox, stands outside of her bedroom window and plays Peter Gabriel to win her back. Or he goes to her office and embarrasses her in front of all of her friends. Or he goes to her best friend's wedding. Am I right? That's the plot line of every girl movie. And it may actually be the plot line of every story that you've ever heard. This morning we're going to talk about the story of the whole Bible. Scholars will call it the meta-narrative or the grand story. And I think it does sort of kind of follow that same plot line. There's creation, and then there's fall, and then there's restoration and renewal. This morning, I want to tell you that story, but instead of going from Genesis and talking about Abraham being a blessing to the nations and go all the way to Revelation, which would take us about nine hours, I decided just to pull one book out of the middle of the Bible called Isaiah. And Isaiah is right in the middle, and it's 66 chapters long, which perfectly reflect the 66 books of the whole Bible. And Isaiah can be divided in half, and if you cut it in half, the first half is primarily about God's judgment towards Israel because they're not doing what he called them to do. And then the second half is about the suffering servant who comes and does what, I, what Israel wasn't doing. And so if we just look at a few verses in Isaiah, we'll learn pretty much the whole meta-narrative, the grand story of the Bible. And so I want to give you the plot of my message, if you will. I want to tell you my three-point sermon in advance, so that if in case you fall asleep, you'll get it now, okay? The first plot is this. I've been told that a really good story must tell you what? A story is essentially telling you something, and you need to know what it's telling you. So a good story tells you what? That's the first plot. I've also been told that a really, really good story tells you why what is what. So you don't just know what the story's about, but you also know why the story's about that. And we're going to talk about that in the second plot of our story this morning. But I've also learned that a really, really good story doesn't just tell you what, and doesn't just tell you why what is what, but a really good story draws the reader, draws the audience into the story, making them believe they're a central character in the story, and maybe even fooling them to believe the story is essentially about them. And if you read your Bible like most Americans read their Bible, you've been fooled into thinking it's about you. It's not about you, but you are an important character in the story, and I want to talk about that on our third plot. Now, the name of the story, I'm going to say, is The Mission of God. And again, it's important to remember the plot's not the story. The story's the story. And I believe the story is all about God's mission to reach people who are far from Him and draw them closer to Himself. He's been about that from the beginning of time. You can also say the mission of God is the missio day, which means the mission of God, or literally the sending of God. God is always sending prophets, angels, His Son, His Spirit, to reach people who are far and reconcile them back to God and give them new life. And so that's what our story is about. 
You also know what our plot's about. I say we dive in. Are you ready? Are you ready to hear a good story? Oh, well, some people do. All right. I'm just going to read three verses right out of Isaiah. I think they'll be on the screen behind me, but I just encourage you to listen with your heart. The first one is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. It says this. Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Then the next passage I want to read is Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon those mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then one more from Isaiah, verse, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So you'll notice in these three verses that uh, there's a lot of good news. Can I get an amen? Good news in Hebrew is the word basar. And good news in Greek, or in the New Testament, is the word euangelion. And then they also have another book called the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament Hebrew translated into the Greek. And so good news in the Septuagint is euangelion. So what I'm trying to say is this. Good news in the Old Testament, good news in the New Testament, good, mood, good news tonight, this morning, today, is gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to tell you that the story is about the gospel. And for those of you who are here that might not know the gospel or confused by the gospel, if I could, just real quickly, I want to tell you what the gospel is. It's good news. It's news about something that happened in space-time history for you. And if you believe it, it's going to change your life because it's good news. It's not good advice. It doesn't tell you what you need to do, but instead it tells you what someone else has already done for you. The good news is that God sent his son to dwell on this earth and then to die upon the cross to pay for our sins. But he didn't just die on the cross. He conquered death and rose from the grave, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering our enemy and giving us new life and freedom. And so it's much like the news where the herald would come through town and say, the, the battle has been won, the victory is ours, the enemy has been vanquished and we are free, free indeed. And the good news is, is that the battle has been won. The Lord, the Prince, has given us peace and you have new life. It's not about what you do. It's about what he done did. Amen? That's the good news. So that's what our story is about. Why is it about that? Well, I've got a, a, a few more Old Testament passages in the book of Isaiah. What I love about Isaiah, if you take just the first six chapters of Isaiah, it outlines the whole book of Isaiah which, of course, outlines the whole Bible. And what happens in the beginning of Isaiah chapter 1 is God says, I created the heavens and the earth, I created the stars, the moon, and then I created humans and I rescued my people, Israel, to be my people, to be a light unto the nations. And then God says, but listen to this. The sun and the moon, they obey me. This is in chapter 1 of Isaiah. But, I, but Israel doesn't obey me. 
I mean, I told the sun to stay there, and the sun stays there. And aren't you glad the sun stays there? If it moves just a millimeter, I've been told, our faces will fry off. And God says, the sun stays there. But Israel, who I rescued out of slavery, they will not obey me. I ask them to be a city on a hill, a light unto the nations, to get thee up on a high mountain and declare good news. But instead of being a city on a hill and a light unto the nations, they are groping in the darkness. They're not influencing cultures. They're being influenced by those cultures. So what am I to do, saith the Lord? And then Isaiah 6, which is probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture, is about Isaiah meeting the Lord. Isaiah the prophet walks into the temple, and I think it goes something like this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, lofty, exalted, and seraphim were flying all around him, and they had six wings, and with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they called out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah said, Oh man, woe is me. And he falls on his face as though dead and he says, I can't even speak in this place. I can't defend myself. I can't even worship like the seraphims are worshiping because as soon as a word crosses my lips, my lips are so unclean that it taints this place where the holy God is. So I can't even speak. And then God sends an angel to Isaiah, purifies his lips. And Isaiah's like, like, what's going on? And then God speaks for the first time. And he says, whom shall we send? And then Isaiah, now can speak with clean lips, says, send me. What do you want me to say? And God says, say this. And then he goes. So the whole book of Isaiah, which is a reflection of the whole Bible, is essentially saying, God gave us the gospel to redeem a people for himself, purify them so that they can be sent to redeem more people for himself. See, it's more than just what the story is about, the gospel. Why is there a gospel? To redeem a people for God's self that he could send out to say and then redeem more people for himself. Jesus tells us in Luke 24, verse 44, he says, Then he said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. I love this. Then he opened their minds. Wow, that'd be cool. And to understand that the scripture said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins shall be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are my witnesses of these things. So Jesus opens their mind and says, this is what the story has always been about. That I would come, die for your sins to redeem you. That's the gospel. Why? So that repentance and forgiveness and gospel and good news will be proclaimed in all the earth. You know, something strange happened as I was studying the Missio Dei. I learned that nowhere in the epistles, and the epistles are the letters of the apostles, not to be confused with the wives of the apostles. The letters are Romans all the way to Revelation. Nowhere in the epistles do any of the apostles quote the Great Commission, which is go therefore into all the world. 
I mean, for instance, Paul doesn't say, I want to go to Spain and preach the gospel in a place where no one has even heard the name of Jesus because Jesus said, go into all the world. That kind of blew me away a little bit. I'll give you an example. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. Paul's preaching to the whole city, the gospel. The Jews get mad and throw banana peels at him. And he says, since you've, since you've thrown the gospel away, this is what's going to happen. Since you thrust the gospel aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, comma, open quote. And you would think Paul was going to quote Jesus, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Okay, thank you. You would think he was going to say, for so the Lord told us, go into the world and make disciples. Or wait, until, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power on higher than go to make disciples. But that's not what Paul does. He quotes Isaiah instead. He says, the Lord has commanded us, comma, saying, open quote, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So what I believe is that when Jesus spent those 40 days with his disciples and he opened their mind, he basically explained to them that this is what the story has always been about. It's not a new game. It's always been the game. And I've come to redeem you as my people so that I can send you out. And he said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. Because the story is all about the sending God. I believe that Jesus' death upon the cross and our redemption is the climax of our story. But again, it's the climax, not the story. If it was the story, it would be over. And we could go home. But it's not over. Why did he redeem us with the gospel? To send us. Um, Christopher Wright, who wrote a book entitled The Mission of God, says this in that book. He says, Too often the church has separated theology which is a discipline about God, what God is like, what God has said, what God has done. So theology, the study of the theos, God. We've separated theology from missions, which is being about what us and what we do. He says, however, our mission is derived from God's own mission, the Missio Dei, which in turn is a reflection of what God is like and what God has said and what God has done and incidentally what he's still doing and is yet to do. Wright says, this unity between theology and mission is the one key way at looking at the grand story of Scripture. Our theology of God must include the mission of God as a unifying meta-narrative of the entire Bible. Perhaps a simpler way of saying it would be to quote Martin Kohler, another missiologist, who says, mission is the mother of all theology. Soteriology sanctification, ecclesiology, um, you know, eschatology, all those ologies all fall under mission. We are saved because of mission. We are sanctified for mission. We are a church for mission. So we know what the story is about. Now we know why it's about that. And I told you that a really, really good story draws you in and makes you feel like you're a central character in the story. And I'll tell you, my, my toddler actually gets this. When Josiah was three, he's five now, when he was three, he loved choo-choo trains. I don't know what it is about boys, but they love choo-choo trains. And in the winter, he got obsessed with the Polar Express. And he asked and begged to watch that thing five times a day. And because we're good parents, we only let him watch it three times a day. 
And one day I was sitting next to him. And can you see a hand if you've seen the Polar Express so I don't have to go tell you about it? Okay, cool. One, one day I'm sitting next to him, and the little boy gets on the train, and Josiah looks at me and says, Daddy, that little boy is me. And I'm like, what? I thought, I learned in psychology that children don't get metaphor. How does he get metaphor? But he saw himself as the little boy in the train. And then I remembered, I saw myself as the Tom Hanks character in the story, right? The bald guy whose job is to get the train to Santa Claus and give chocolate to the children. I guess that means I've evolved as to an adult now, that I see myself as the conductor. Anyone else see themselves as a conductor? Am I the only one? No, I am the only one. So a really, really good story draws you in and makes you feel like you're a part of it. And here's the awesome thing about the what and the why is that God has chosen to write you into this story and you are a character in this story and our job is to go, just like Isaiah, what do you want me to say? And God says, I want you to get up on a high mountain and preach good news. And that's a real quick point in this plot because I could just ask one question. Where are you in the story Are we preaching good news? If the people of God, if the church is not on the mission of God, then we are essentially being disobedient to the gospel that we claim is good news. I'll say that again. If the church is not engaged in the mission of God, then we are essentially being disobedient to the gospel which we say is good news. I want to show you another passage in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So obviously Paul's talking about they who are far from God. How are they going to call on God if they've not believed him? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then there's a turn. Listen to this. And how are they to preach unless they are sent. So we've got a lot of they's. And it's like Paul knows instinctively that there's a cycle here. How are they going to hear unless they go? (laughs) Because once they hear and receive it and believe it, then they have to go. And so it's over and over and over and over again. And that's why the story's not over. And that's why we are here. But listen to what Paul says at the end of that. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Again, he's quoting Isaiah. But then he says this, But they, there's that they again, have not all obeyed the gospel. How do we disobey the gospel? By not going. So we hear good news. Oh, that's good. And I'm saved. And I'm, I'm free indeed. But then we don't go and say... We've been disobedient to the news that we call is good, good. How good is your good news? If it's good, you've got to say it. If it's okay, good, you don't have to say it. But I think it's good. The good news is good. Amen. Daryl Gooder, another uh, missiologist who wrote about the Missio Day, says the Church of Jesus Christ is not the purpose or the goal of the gospel. We're not. We thought it was all about us, didn't we? The saints of God. The church of Jesus Christ is not the purpose or the goal of the gospel, but rather it's the instrument and the witness. God's mission embraces the whole creation. God so loved the world is the emphasis in the beloved gospel summary in John 3.16. This does not mean that the church is not essential to God's work of salvation. It is. 
but it is essential as God's chosen people who are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. And he's quoting Genesis, the beginning of this plot. We, God's mission is to reach people who are far from him. The what is the gospel which redeems people. Why? To reach people far from him. And that's why the church, that's why you and I exist. Now I'm going to conclude. And um, I'm going to conclude with a story. Because everyone loves a good story, right? And, and I told you that. And I also told you that it was in the Bible there are a lot of mini short stories that sort of reflect the grand story, like Abraham and Joseph. And there's all these little stories. I thought it would be wise um, just to pull one story out of the Bible that I think reflects the whole narrative of the Bible. But I want to warn you in advance. It's a short story. And I also want to warn you that it's a convicting one. Very convicting. And so I need to apologize in advance if I step on your toes. Because I'm a guest here this morning, and I don't really want to step on your toes. But I think the church needs some toes stomping, don't you think? Um, I don't know anyone here really that well, and so I don't know if you're not engaged in the mission of God. And so I'm not pointing my finger at you saying, hey, you need to get thee up on a high mountain and go be a herald of good news. But what I do know is that the church is in radical decline in this country. I've been told that this morning, 80% of Americans will not be in church. On any given weekend, actually, the statistic is, only 16.7% of Americans will attend a church service. That means more than 80% do not. Or, or I know you probably hate statistics. I do, too, like Mark Twain. Um, that means 8 out of 10 Americans will not go to church. That means 2 out of 10 Americans will go to church. I went to church twice this weekend. But 80% of our neighbors are not going. So I feel like maybe the church needs to get up on a high mountain and say some good news. Can I get an amen? And so this story is convicting and very, very convicting. And I think it's going to convict you. And then I'm just going to get off the stage. <laughs> it's found in Second Kings chapter 7. And you don't have to go there. I'm just going to read it for you. They rose, wait, excuse me. Now there were four lepers, leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine, which is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here at the city gate, we're going to die too. So let's do this. Let's go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we'll live and get to eat. But if they kill us, well, then we'll die. But we got a 50-50 chance. So they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. And when they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to themselves, Behold, the kings of Israel have hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians, so let's get out of here. And so they rose and they fled in the twilight and they left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even their camp, just as it was, and they fled for their lives. And when those lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and they ate and they drank. And they carried from there silver and gold and clothes and they went and they hid them and they returned and entered into another tent and they carried from there also and went 
and they hid them. And so the, the background is, is that Israel's been surrounded by the Arameans for I don't know how, how long, to be honest with you, but they've run out of food, they've run out of water, and they're all going to die of famine. And there's four lepers who are sitting outside the city because that's where lepers sit, and they're also going to die of famine. And so the lepers say, look, we have 100% of death here. We have 50% of death there. Let's go to the enemies and say, can we have some food? And they're probably going to kill us because we're lepers. But honestly, I'd rather get speared to death than, you know, starve to death. Starving to death seems like a bad way to go, you know, for me especially. And so they go to the camp of the Arameans. And if I was a movie producer, this is how I would shoot this scene. Those four lepers are limping up over this hill. And they look down at this camp and there's 732 tents spread out across this camp. Wow. And it's silent. And maybe there's an animal you know, that runs through just for, just for effect. And then they go down in there and they peek into one of the tents and they see a turkey leg. Because I don't know why, but in these things I always think medieval. You know what I mean? There's a turkey leg and a big jug of wine. And that leper grabs that turkey leg and he's drinking the wine. And he's looking around and there's silver and there's gold. And he's got that turkey leg and he's picking up some silver. And I don't even know if he has all his fingers, right, because he's a leper. Or maybe he doesn't even have a hand and he's pushing the silver and his gold. Maybe he grabs a blanket and he's pulling it out to the woods and he's digging a hole with his nubs. And he gets that hole in there and he puts the treasure in there. And he goes back up and he looks and he's like, man, there's 731 more. And he gets inside there and he eats it and he's chewing it and he's, oh, it's overwhelming. And then he says this. This is the passage. And then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. But we are keeping silent. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do live in a day of good news. I pray that you would forgive me for keeping silent. I pray that you would forgive the church from keeping silent. I pray, Lord, that you would write into our hearts, into our souls, the mystery, the wonder, the beauty that we are characters in this story, that we must go, that we must say, that we must tell. Lord, America needs to hear the good news. Father, here we are this morning to worship you. And I, my prayer and my hope, and I, I believe that our song should be, Father, send me. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.